At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. It's quiet. It's too quiet. In the 24 hours since Donald Trump attacked Israel in the middle of its first week under siege by Hamas and called Hezbollah very smart, Trump has been virtually silent. There was one press release on campaign stationery, screenshotted to social media. The critical first paragraph clearly not written by him, written in the past tense, strange of its own accord, quote, there was no better friend or ally of Israel than Trump. And there was a second paragraph written in more traditional Trumpian semi-literate rage, fixated on the $6 billion in Iranian assets, partially restored to that country as part of the release of the five Americans, but with one small problem. The press release went out at 6.51 p.m. Eastern last night, roughly four hours after the Biden administration had reversed itself and, in essence, frozen the $6 billion anew. But more astonishing than that faux pas, Biden must do this. Yeah, he did it four hours ago. Oh, oh, was the overall silence. There was a bunch of state polls sent out, a picture of an award that Deutsche Bank gave him for best, I don't know, best loan recipient? Who knows? Nothing in his own maniacal hand about Israel, about Hamas, about Iran, about Hezbollah, about what he said in Florida, insulting Israel and mocking its prime minister and explaining how the country wasn't tough enough for this fight. Something went really, really wrong in Trump land yesterday, and I don't know what it is, but I'm tingling, and it ain't my sciatica. Oddly, Trump got a reprieve in Congress yesterday. You knew it was over when the New York Times posted the headline, Scalise scrounges for votes as GOP speaker fight drags on. Nobody uses the word scrounges unless it's bad. 
And it was bad. I mean, remember this timeline. House Republicans walked out of their conference Wednesday afternoon determined to elect Steve Scalise, Speaker of the House, by 3 p.m. that day. By 3 p.m. the next day, Marjorie Taylor Barney Rubble Green had prettied up her sentiment a little bit, was still saying, though, in as many words, that she would not vote for Scalise because he has cancer. And another meeting had been scheduled for 7.30. And then by 8 last night, Scalise had withdrawn. And Jim Jordan, Trump's endorsee, was the new leading candidate, I guess, with 99 votes. Just 118 shy of election. And now the anti-Jordan crowd bringing out, guess what? The wrestling rape case. The NBC congressional guy asked Congresswoman Maliotakis of Staten Island if there were five never-Jordan votes. And for the first time in her term of office, she answered honestly, quote, there are five never-everybody's. That's the problem. The little crackpot in the bow tie who's the caretaker in the job right now, McHenry, he won't run for speaker, won't endorse anybody for speaker, won't even offer to broker a compromise about speaker. It's up to the will of the conference, he says. And Republican after Republican steps right up as profiles in cowardice. I mean, I really, really feel badly for the House Republicans. No, I'm lying. I don't feel for them at all. I hope they bailed on Scalise because Jordan's people put out that story Wednesday night about how he had spent an average of nearly $114 a night, two filet mignons, spinach and no tip at Capitol Grill. And I hope half of them did so by saying, only $114 a night, this guy's making us look bad. And the Republicans are right back where they were when I walked into this movie theater in 1998. They tried to impeach and dirty up a Democratic president and all that the Speaker of the House who went along with it got. All he was able to accomplish was to cost himself his own job. And the first guy they had lined up to replace him, like Scalise, a guy everybody loved from Louisiana, had all the support behind him until all of a sudden he didn't have any support at all. And now when they ask him who he's supporting, he says he's not involved. He's just a simple majority leader. And by Monday, he may be claiming he's never even heard of this job you mentioned. What did you say it was again? Speaking like a horse? The Mary Tyler Moore show line about changing sportscasters pops into my head again. You never fire your old sportscaster, Lou Grant says to her, until you've hired your new sportscaster. For now, anyway, my coin is still on Kevin McCarthy Part 2 Electric Boogaloo. Of course, that underscores that one of the more frightening aspects of doing news commentary is that occasionally you see something obvious that the authorities seem to have missed or at least haven't acted on yet, and you call it out, and then they do the exact thing. And you have this terrible, sinking feeling did they not notice it until I whined about it? Is the world really that effed up? Senator Bob Menendez re-indicted on charges that he conspired to act as an agent of the government of Egypt while he served as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. No spit. September 26th, after they indicted him for taking bribes, even fantastically original A-game bribes like actual bars of gold. When that happened, I noted here that I was indifferent to the money part. 
quoting self again. See, my problem is that the senator sure seems like he was spying for Egypt while chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee may have been tipping them off about what questions the Senate would be asking about the Egyptian part of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And maybe when they arraign him tomorrow, he shouldn't be released on bail and old repurposed script. Senator Fetterman of Pennsylvania, who I like enough that I think he should get two votes, his own and Kirsten Sinema's, immediately replied to the indictment by calling for the expulsion of Senator Menendez. We cannot have an alleged foreign agent in the United States Senate. This is not a close call, he says. Fetterman is right, but he is saying this only because he's only been a senator since January, and thus he has not really had the time to fill his closet full of ethical skeletons. None of those senior to him in the Senate in either party says this. They didn't say it after the first indictment, and they haven't said it after the second for the same reason that very few baseball teams complain when it's obvious that an opposing team is cheating with the pitcher scuffing the baseball or sending a pitcher to the mound with a giant glop of pine tar on his neck or somebody banging out Morse code on garbage cans in the back because either their team is doing the exact same thing or some team they like is doing the exact same thing. Or some senator they like. I mean, if we're going to start nosing around in every senator's office to see who is taking gold bars and who hasn't and who's taking favors or dinners or Mercedes Benzes from foreign governments, we're going to take all of those people and accuse them of being spies. We're going to have a lot of indictments, aren't we? More seriously. Never mind expelling him. How in the world is Senator Menendez out on bail? And who, if anyone, is Senator Tommy Tuberville an agent of? Saturday, Tommy the Tuba put out a boilerplate, quote, the Iran-backed terrorist attacks on Israel are completely unacceptable. United States and Alabama stand firmly with Israel, etc. Et Generic, but fine. Congrats to whoever wrote it. But now, interview with WBRC Television in Birmingham in his home state, and Tommy says, quote, I'm hoping that cooler heads prevail. They don't go into Palestine, only Tuberville. He don't say Palestine. He say Palestine. I'm hoping that cooler heads prevail. They don't go into Palestine. Hopefully they get the hostages back and people start cooperating but this has been really bad. Israel has the right to go because they came in and they did some terrible things in their country. But the problem is, when you start picking sides in the Middle East, it could get really messy very quick. Picking sides, Coach Moron. Apart from the inanity of this remark, you picked sides on Saturday. Or don't you read your own press statements? And we have a classic performative stunt related to the Hamas attack from the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. Remember Ron DeSantis? Quote, Today I signed an executive order authorizing rescue operations in Israel 
to bring Floridians home and transport supplies to our allies. We will not leave our residents behind. To the many Floridians who are stuck in Israel trying to get home, help is on the way, unquote. Ooh. The Florida State Special Forces are on the road. The FDF. Raid at Defuniac Springs. Actually, if you read this DeSantis executive order, if you wade through the hip-high bull spit past the 18 different uses of the word whereas, all of them capitalized, you get to what he really has done. DeSantis has ordered the state director of emergency management to, quote, seek direct assistance and enter into agreements with any and all agencies of the federal government as may be needed to meet this emergency. In other words, DeSantis issued a memo. A memo that directs one of his flunkies to issue another memo. But it's an emergency memo. It's a memo with sirens on it. It's a memo declaring a Florida state Israel state of emergency in Florida. One other political note, and it is far away from Gaza and Trump and the House, and maybe not as far away from the House as one might initially think. By now, you've heard this story, I believe. The Mary Lou Retton story. Winner of five gymnastics medals at the 1984 Olympics. On the eve now of the 40th anniversary celebration of having become the first woman to win the individual all around for the U.S., hospitalized, no insurance, unable to breathe on her own. Her daughter started a GoFundMe for her, says she has a rare form of pneumonia and something really, really does not add up here. As of May of last year, Mary Lou Retton lived in and almost certainly owned a 9,000-square-foot, multi-million-dollar mansion in South Texas, custom-built, six-bed, six-bath, rustic look, but with every modern convenience and a TV room and a big pool. There had been a divorce. There had been a move back to be with family in West Virginia, then another back move to Houston, and now crowdfunding that raised a reported $375,000 in two days, including $50,000 from a Houston mattress dealer. And her partner on Dancing with the Stars says he talked to her Tuesday? Even though she can't breathe on her own and is presumably on a ventilator? And she led the Pledge of Allegiance at the 2004 Republican Convention, and when Congress was working to pass a bill in the wake of the Larry Nassar nightmare... The bill to protect young athletes by requiring Olympic governing bodies to report all cases of sexual assault to the police. The Olympic governing body, USA Gymnastics, lobbied against that bill. And guess who they brought to the Senate hearing to insist that the rules were just fine the way they were and that bill should not be passed? Oh, Mary Lou Retton testified against the anti-Larry Nasser bill. Is her family crowdfunding for a woman who owns or sold a $2 million home in May of last year? Maybe. Could your personal fortunes go so bad in 18 months that you could sell a $2 million home or still have it 
and be broke? Absolutely. Could medical expenses pile up that fast? Certainly. Could a Republican who lobbied against protecting teenage girls from rape be a part of some scam to get you to pay for her medical bills? You tell me. Also of interest here today, let me pick your brain and your distant memory. Did you ever watch the Sports Center? Did you like the Sports Center? Good. Because it's dead now. It's dead. Or soon it will be. Something was revealed yesterday from deep in the heart of what passes for television sports journalism that is an inescapable sign that sooner or later, Sports Center and Football Night in America and the Fox Baseball pregame show and all those other sports casts I used to host that they are mortally wounded with no chance of recovery. Also, Sunday is 35 years since I predicted Kirk Gibson's World Series home run 10 minutes before it happened. And there are witnesses to my prediction. That's next. This is Countdown. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann, who can predict almost anything. Thank you, Alexis Denny. And I'll explain who she is and what she's doing here in one moment. 
This is Sports Center. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, it is hard to be startled by anything during the death rattle of anything in sports television that is not an actual game broadcast, but this, this is startling. Pat McAfee, the former Indianapolis Colts punter who sold his independent sports streaming show to ESPN for a reported $85 million over five years, now reveals to the New York Post that those frequent, controversial, sometimes hallucinogenic interviews he does with the probable future ex-quarterback of the New York Jets, Aaron Rodgers, he has paid Rodgers millions of dollars to do them. Now, sit down, relax. I'm not going on an ethical rant about Rodgers or the fact that he's afraid of a vaccine needle or one about ESPN or how McAfee is doing this or that. But if ESPN has any interest in maintaining its stable of studio shows, NFL Countdown, SportsCenter, NBA Today, I mean, if they have a darts show, ESPN Darts Live or whatever, if it wants to keep any of them, It has to sever its ties with Pat McAfee immediately. It may actually be too late to do that, but it should try. This is not about journalism or sports or Pat McAfee or, as I said, even about Aaron Rodgers. This is about money. Because if one player is going to get paid to be on ESPN for interviews, they're all going to want to get paid to be on ESPN for interviews. Or on Fox or CBS or anybody, BBC or Wally and the Trucking Bozo on Fan Radio Nebraska. Or on the college postgame show in a college near you. We're not talking morals or ethics. We're talking a question that will destroy an entire medium. And the question is this. Why are you expecting me to come on for free if you're paying Aaron Rodgers millions of dollars? I mean, at this rate, even post-game interviews with the Chicago White Sox are worth like $13 per player per appearance. And guess which industry does not have $13 to pay each player for each interview? The studio shows from SportsCenter to the special high school post-game edition of Wally and the Trucking Bozo, they are shrinking into negligibility as it is. As the old Proctor and Bergman joke jingle went, hot rock radio, if the records weren't free, we'd be all news. If player interviews cost money, there aren't going to be any more player interviews. So ESPN, this is simple. Go to Pat McAfee's studio right now, get everybody out safely, and light it on fire. Burn it down. If he himself will take a lot of money to leave sports broadcasting forever, give it to him, all that he wants. Or just start turning everything you have into a version of what he does and be prepared to pay $85 million for five years of it but like 10 times a year.
Thank you, Nancy Faust. And here's your $13. I mean, there are journalistic questions here, too. If you are paying an athlete for his comments, how do you know he's not embellishing his comments so you will embellish his paycheck. I mean, if I'm Coach Deion Sanders and I find out you're paying Aaron Rodgers, say, $2 million a year, why wouldn't I say, hey, you give me $3 million a year and I'll make up a story for you that me and the 92 Braves threw the World Series? Or I'll, I'll tell you that we didn't throw the World Series. Whatever you like. And then there's the real nightmare scenario on teams that unfolded when our ancestors tried to mix money and journalism and athletes more than a century ago. In 1911, the New York Times, the New York goddamn Times, hired New York Giants pitching ace Rube Marquard to, quote, write, unquote, columns about its team as it played the A's in that year's World Series. So the New York Herald turned around and hired his teammate Christy Mathewson to, quote, write, unquote, columns about the same games. They had ghost writers, of course, sports writers who wrote the words for them, but it was their byline on each column. Marquardt in the Times, Mathewson in the Herald. When Frank Baker of the A's beat Marquardt with a late home run in Game 2, Mathewson's ghostwriter wrote, Marquardt makes the wrong pitch. And he had Mathewson slam Marquardt for ignoring the scouting reports on Baker. Then in game three, Baker beat Mathewson with a homer late. And under Marquardt's byline, Marquardt's ghostwriter asked, will the great Mathewson tell us exactly what he pitched to Baker? Mathewson and Marquardt barely spoke to each other ever again. It would be nine years before the New York Giants won a World Series. If anybody should know the intra-team dangers of the Pat McAfee millions and millions experiment, it is ESPN's own Sunday night baseball analyst David Cohn. In 1988, the New York Daily News paid David Cohn for an exclusive column on the upcoming National League Championship Series against the L.A. Dodgers in Los Angeles. In it, Cohn's ghostwriter called the Dodgers ace lucky, and the Dodgers' top reliever, a high school pitcher. And the Dodgers made sure every player and seemingly every fan in Los Angeles had a copy of the column. I was there at Dodger Stadium the night Cone pitched. He said the hatred from the stands and the dugout was so palpable he could barely breathe. As I said, I was there. I think he's understating it. Cone gave up five runs before being chased in the second inning. The Mets lost the game and the series, and the paper paid him $500. So, paying Aaron Rodgers millions, that's got to go well for ESPN and the industry, if by well you mean a cataclysm that will destroy ESPN's credibility and its relationships with every team and every player and also its profitability, and it will wipe out every show that relies on player interviews, including Wally and the Trucking Bozo! Bon chance, boys. I mean, it's not like sports journalism isn't fraught enough as it is. The Atlanta Braves are actually angry because after Game 2 of their NL playoff series against Philadelphia which turned on the Braves doubling off the Philly star Bryce Harper, shortstop Orlando Arcia ran around the Braves' clubhouse shouting, Ha ha, attaboy Harper, while, quoting a reporter, reporters circled the room. 
In Game 3, Harper used the story as motivation. He hit two home runs against the Braves, and as he circled the bases, he stared daggers at Arcia on both home runs. Arcia and the other Braves players have actually complained that Arcia's repeated needling of Harper shouted in their clubhouse was somehow confidential and should not have been reported because even though it was done in front of literally dozens of reporters, it was not part of some actual interview. A quote here, the clubhouse is a sanctuary, and I think when things like that get out, it doesn't make people want to talk to the media at all said Braves catcher Travis Darno in one of the least supportable comments any player has ever made in human history. Even a local Atlanta TV sports anchor named Miles Garrett and local TV sports anchors have largely been reduced to fans with microphones and pennants that they wave. He claimed that Arcia's remark which he made a lot of times in front of a lot of witnesses, was somehow off the record and reporting it violated a trust. The good news here is, happily, this will all be resolved when every player is paid for every interview after every game and on every show. And then the players who are really in demand, they will be given the right to approve their remarks before they are quoted or played on TV. Hey, Pandora, can I borrow your box? The irony here, too, is that players can say things. They can even, like Arcia, shout things in a clubhouse, and they can have the right to expect that nobody reports them. I know. It happened to me. Before the fifth and final game of the 1999 AL Championship Series at Fenway Park in Boston, I had to get into the Yankee clubhouse like two innings before the game ended so I could cover the celebrating Yankee players and the award presentation live on Fox's broadcast of the game for which we were paying baseball millions. I was on a platform, I was bleached in a camera light, and the technicians were checking their stuff and the lights and the angles and everything else when the clubhouse door slammed open and in strutted the Yankee second baseman Chuck Knobloch. He was swearing profusely, profoundly, amazingly. Chuck had been having trouble throwing ground balls. He was throwing them away, mostly. And as the eighth inning started, Yankees manager Joe Torre had removed him from the game, denying him the chance to be in on the on-field celebration of the pennant. Knobloch was so enraged that he never saw me, or the platform I was standing on, or the camera lights. He used all the expletives known to man, and he directed them all at his own manager. The Yankees public relations guy, a childhood friend of mine, rushed over to me to insist that I could not report what I had just heard, and he was a little shocked when I said, you're right. He said, what? I said, I'm here as a lighting prop. Knobloch has a perfect right to expect there'd be no reporters in the clubhouse during the game. If he says it again afterwards, I'll say I heard it just now first. Otherwise, I'm never going to mention it. No way. Now, of course, the PR guy would be rushing over to me to negotiate how much Fox would be willing to pay Knobloch to let us report his rage. Eleven years earlier, I had an entirely different experience in the waning moments of a postseason game, and oddly enough, this ties into that 1988 season of David Cohn and the Dodgers and Alexis Denny, all of whom I have mentioned already. 
On Sunday, the Dodgers will celebrate the 35th anniversary of what is certainly the most famous moment in their history, in Los Angeles anyway, Game 1 of the 1988 World Series against the Oakland A's. Literally, half of the Dodgers' starting lineup that had won the National League pennant was hurt, and the other half was not that impressive to begin with. National League Most Valuable Player Kirk Gibson had nearly destroyed his left hamstring in Game 2 of that playoff series that David Cohn had written about, and Gibson had ripped up his right knee in Game 7. He was assumed to be out of the World Series, but he was still on the Dodger roster, and the joke was that was only because the Dodgers literally did not have any other healthy players under contract, and their only other option was to activate 61-year-old manager Tom Lasorda. Anyway. The Dodgers had actually led Game 1 against the powerful Oakland A's 2-0 after the first inning, but by the ninth, they were trailing 4-3 with literally three of the worst hitters in the National League due up, and then the pitcher. I was there covering the game for KCBS Channel 2 in L.A., and my pal Alexis Denny, news and sports producer for CBS Network News in Los Angeles, made our way together down to the tiny alcove from the press box, the alcove between the clubhouses from which we could see just a sliver of the field, pretty much just the pitcher and the batter framed by a hot dog stand. As the Oakland relief ace Dennis Eckersley warmed up to pitch the bottom of the ninth and he had given up exactly nine hits in his previous 18 games, in 14 of which he had recorded saves, Alexis asked me simply and appropriately, so what are we going to ask Eck after this game is over? And, matter-of-factly, without any emotion, certainly without any sense of predicting anything, I said, we're going to ask Eck about this game-losing home run he's about to give up to Kirk Gibson. Alexis looked at me funny. I mean, funnier than usual. What? Gibson's not playing. He's hurt. I looked at her with... Mild annoyance. Oh, come on. You know it has to happen. I can only describe my feeling at that time as being exactly what it had been a decade before at another playoff game in Boston, with the Red Sox leading the Yankees 2-0 in the top of the seventh, with two Yankees on and New York shortstop Bucky Dent coming up, and my best friend, the Red Sox fan, exhaling when the last batter had popped out and saying, thank goodness, Dent is no home run threat, and I began to speak in tongues. And what I was saying was about how his hubristic remark about Dent would now necessarily cause to happen next. What would happen next? A three-run home run by Bucky Dent, and it would be all his fault. And then Dent hit the homer. Neither the Dent nor the Gibson home run predictions were really predictions. I felt no sense of investment in it. I didn't race to put down a bet. I suppose that at some other games, I had made equally impossible announcements of events that did not happen, but I have never been given to that. So if I did do it, it was only a couple of times. My batting average is like four or 500 on these. And anyway, these weren't calculations or analyses on my part. I just felt like I was running about five minutes ahead of the rest of the world, and these things, Dent's home run in 1978, Gibson's home run in 1988, these things had already happened. Anywho, Mike Davis of the Dodgers walked, stole second base, and with two outs, Gibson, to the shock of everybody, 
except me, managed somehow to climb up the three steps of the Dodger dugout and waddle out to home plate and then on a 3-2 pitch hit the game-winning home run. Like I said, as Dodger Stadium shook and we prepared to go into the clubhouses, Alexis Denny gave me a look that I still can't really describe. But 35 years later, I know that since that night, she has not been fully convinced that I am of this earth. Alexis was nice enough to make up an affidavit about all this. It hangs on my wall. And yes, this really did happen. I will also note that the Dodgers won the World Series, the only time since 1965 they have done so in a full Major League season. And once again, having been eliminated by Arizona on Wednesday night, they are, for like the 27th time in these 35 years, the Dodgers are celebrating the anniversary of Kirk Gibson's home run that I told you was going to happen by not playing a postseason game because their season is already over. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. This is Colin Coward from The Herd with Colin Cowherd. Angie's list is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big, small, indoor, outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled pros to get the job done well. Listen, I've got a couple of things in a bathroom in my house. Got to get it fixed. I don't have time, and I'm not good at it. Angie is. In just a few taps in the Angie app or clicks on the site. You can have Angie tackle your home service project start to finish. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare, and hire pros to ensure a job done well. With 29 years of experience combined with new digital tools to simplify the process, Angie makes completing home projects really easy. Renters, you can use Angie too for moving, installations, or cleaning. Angie can even help with extremely specific projects. Just tell them what you need, and Angie will find the right solution for you. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com, or download the app today. To the number one story on the countdown, and it's Fridays with Thurber, and only occasionally did the great American humorist bend towards the supernatural. Lots of Thurber's characters, 
like his fictionalized version of his own mother, claimed to get messages from beyond the grave and stuff like that. But rarely did Thurber ever go occult in the first person. This is not true in one of my all-time favorites of his stories, The Black Magic of Barney Holler, in which a slight accent turns into something that is just right up against the line of being actually a little scary, but still hilarious. The Black Magic of Barney Haller by James Thurber. It was one of those hot days on which the earth is uninhabitable. Even as early as 10 o'clock in the morning, even on the hill where I live under the dark maples, the long porch was hot, and the wicker chair I sat in complained hotly. My coffee was beginning to wear off, and with it, the momentary illusion it gives that things are right and life is good. There were sultry mutterings of thunder. I had a quick feeling that if I looked up from my book, I would see Barney Holler. I looked up, and there he was, coming along the road, lightning playing about his shoulders, thunder following him like a dog. Barney is, or was, my hired man. He is strong and amiable, sweaty and dependable, slowly and heavily confident. But he is also eerie. He traffics with the devil. His ears twitch when he talks, but it isn't so much that as the things he says. Once in late June, when all of a moment sabers began to flash brightly in the heavens and bowling balls rumbled, I took refuge in the barn. I always have a feeling that I am going to be struck by lightning and either riven like an old apple tree or left with a foot that aches in rainy weather and a habit of fainting. These things happen. Barney came in not to escape the storm to which he is, or pretends to be, indifferent, but to put the scythe away. Suddenly he said the first of those things that made me, when I was with him, faintly creepy. He pointed at the house. Once I see this boat come down to rock, he said. It is phenomena like that of which I stand in constant dread. Boats coming down rocks. People being teleported. Statues dripping blood. Old regrets and dreams in the form of luna moths fluttering against the windows at midnight. Of course, I finally figured out what Barney meant. Or what I comforted myself with believing he meant. Something about a bolt coming down the lightning rod on the house. A commonplace and utterly natural thing. I should have dismissed it, but it had its effect on me. Here was a stolid man, smelling of hay and leather, who talked like somebody out of Charles Fort's books, or like a traveler back from Oz. And all the time, the lightning was zigging and zagging around him. On this hot morning, when I saw Barney coming along with his faithful storm trudging behind him, I went back frowningly to my copy of Swan's Way. I hoped that Barney, seeing me absorbed in a book, would pass by without saying anything. I read, I myself seemed actually to have become the subject of my book, a church, a quartet, the rivalry between Francis I and Charles V. I could feel Barney standing looking at me, but I didn't look at him. This morning, by and by, said Barney, I go hunt gratches in de woods. That's fine, I said, and turned a page and pretended to be engrossed in what I was reading. 
Barney walked on. He had wanted to talk some more, but he walked on. After a paragraph or two, his words began to come between me and the words in the book. Bime by, I go hunt grotches in de woods. If you are susceptible to such things, it is not difficult to visualize grotches. They fluttered into my mind. Ugly little creatures about the size of whippoorwills, only covered with blood and honey and the scrapings of church bells. Grotches. Who and what, I wondered, really was this thing in the form of a hired man that kept anointing me ominously in passing with abracadabra? Barney didn't go toward the woods at once. He weeded the corn. He picked apple boughs off off the lawn. He knocked a yellow jacket's nest down out of a plum tree. It was raining now, but he didn't seem to notice it. He kept looking at me out of the corner of his eye, and I kept looking at him out of the corner of my eye. What time is it, please? He called to me finally. I put down my book and sauntered out to him. When you go for those grotches, I said firmly, I'll go with you. I was sure he wouldn't want me to go. I was right. He protested that he could get the grotches himself. I'll go with you, I said stubbornly. We stood looking at each other, and then abruptly, just to give him something to ponder over, I quoted, I'm going out to clean the pasture spring. I'll only stop to take the leaves away and wait to watch the water clear, I may. I shan't be gone long. You come too. It wasn't, I realized, very good abracadabra, but it served. Barney looked at me in a puzzled way. Yes, he said vaguely. It's five minutes of twelve, I said, remembering he had asked. Then we go, he said, and we trudged through the rain over to the orchard fence and climbed that and opened a gate and went out into the meadow that slopes up to the woods. I had a prefiguring of Barney at some proper spot deep in the woods, prancing around like a goat casting off his false nature, shedding his hired man's garments, dropping his Teutonic accent, repeating diabolical phrases, conjuring up grotches. There was a great slash of lightning and a long bumping of thunder as we reached the edge of the woods. I turned and fled. Glancing over my shoulder, I saw Barney standing and staring after me. It turned out, on the face of it, To be as simple as the boat that came down the rock, grotches were crotches, crotched saplings, which he cut down to use as supports under the peach boughs, because in bearing time they become so heavy with fruit that there was danger of the branches snapping off. I saw Barney later putting the crotches in place. We didn't have much to say to each other. I can see now that he was beginning to suspect me, too. About six o'clock next evening, I was alone in the house and sleeping upstairs. Barney rapped on the door of the front porch. I knew it was Barney because he called to me. I woke up slowly. It was dark for six o'clock. I heard rumblings and saw flickerings. Barney was standing at the front door with his storm at heel. I had the conviction that it wasn't storming anywhere except around my house. There couldn't, without the intervention of the devil or one of his agents, be so many lightning storms in one neighborhood. I had been dreaming of Proust and the church at Cambrai 
and Madeleines dipped in tea and the rivalry between Francis I and Charles V. My head whirled and I didn't get up. Barney kept on rapping. He called out again. There was a flash, followed by a sharp splitting sound. Now I leaped up. This time I thought, he is here to get me. I had a notion that he was standing at the door barefooted with a wreath of grape leaves around his head and a wild animal's skin slung over his shoulder. I didn't want to go down, but I did. He was, as usual, solid, amiable, dressed like a hired man. I went out onto the porch and looked at the improbable storm now on in all of its fury. This is getting pretty bad, I said, meaningly. Barney looked at the rain placidly. Well, I said irritably, what's up? Barney turned his little squinty blue eyes on me. We go to the Gaddock now and become warbs, he said. The hell we do, I thought to myself quickly. I was uneasy. I was, you might even say, terrified, but I determined not to show it. If he began to chant incantations or to make obscene signs or if he attempted to sling me over his shoulder, I resolved to plunge right out into that storm, lightning and all, and run to the nearest house. I didn't know what they would think at the nearest house when I burst in upon them or what I would tell them, but I didn't intend to accompany this amiable-looking fiend to any garrick and become a warb. I tried to persuade myself that there was some simple explanation, that warbs would turn out to be as innocuous as boats on rocks and grotches in devoods. But the conviction gripped me, in the growling of the thunder, that here at last was the moment when Barney Holler, or whoever he was, had chosen to get me. I walked toward the steps that led to the lawn and turned and faced him grimly. Listen, I barked suddenly. Did you know that even when it isn't brillig, I can produce slithy toves? Did you happen to know that the Momrath never lived that could outgrabe me? Yeah, and furthermore, I can become anything I want to. Even if I were a warb, I wouldn't have to keep on being one if I didn't want to. I can become a playing card at will, too. Once I was the jack of clubs, only I forgot to take my glasses off and some guy recognized me. I... Barney was backing slowly away toward the petunia box at one end of the porch. His little blue eyes were wide. He saw that I had him. I think I'll go now, he said, and he walked out into the rain. The rain followed him down the road. I have a new hired man now. Barney never came back to work for me after that day. Of course, I figured out, finally, what he meant about the Garrick and the Warbs. He had simply got horribly mixed up in trying to tell me that he was going up to the Garrett and clear out the wasps, of which I have thousands. The new hired man is afraid of them. Barney could have scooped them up in his hands and thrown them out a window without getting stung. I am sure he trafficked with the devil. But I am sorry I let him go. done all the damage i can do here thank you for listening countdown has come to you from the vin scully studios talking about kirk gibson at the olbermann broadcasting empire in new york the music you've heard was for the most part 
arranged, produced, and performed by Countdown Musical Directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. Brian Ray handled the guitars, bass, and drums. John Philip Chanel did the orchestration and keyboards, and it was produced by TKO Brothers. Other music, including other Beethoven tunes, were arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. Sports music is courtesy of ESPN Inc., and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, and we call it the Olderman theme from ESPN2. Your price may vary. Our satirical and pithy musical comments are by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was, as I mentioned, my friend Alexis Denny, live from Paris. Everything else is pretty much my fault. That's Countdown for this, the 1011th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Convict him now while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is Tuesday. Bulletins as the news warrants. I have no further predictions at this time. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare dealing with pests can be a pain but relax terminix can help because when pests show up so does terminix with over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com.